Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about simple techniques that you can use to attach to your child. Before we get started, I'm going to throw out a request. Please go to iTunes and give us a rating. It is a big darn deal to us. It's a big darn deal to iTunes. We could really use your rating. So pop over to iTunes and you can just do a star rating if you want. If you're feeling particularly generous, you can give us a written response, a written comment. That would be great as well. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Foster Care Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am your host and the director of Creating a Family. You can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. One way they do that is through their free backpack program, which provides newly adopted children with their own backpack, which is personalized with their initials, and it is filled with, well, a cute little bear and a blanket for the child. But most important, or at least from my standpoint, most important, is a tote bag with parenting resources for their parents. So if you are a newly adopted family or you know of one, please ask your agency to join the backpack program at jockeybeingfamily.com. It is free for the agency, so it's really a win-win. They just need to know about it. So that's your job. You tell them about it. Today, we're going to be talking about attachment, and specifically, we're going to be talking about simple techniques, tips, whatever, that parents can use to help to attach to their child. Our guest today to talk about that is Deborah Gray. She is a clinical social worker specializing in attachment, trauma, and foster care. She is also the author of numerous books, and and we have talked about a number of them on on other courses that we've done. But the one that I, I particularly love is Attaching Through Love, Hugs, and Play, Simple Strategies to Help Build Connections with Your Child. Welcome, Deborah, to Creating a Family. It's always a pleasure to be invited to be part of your program, Don. You're a gracious and well-informed host, so thank you. Oh, well, thank you. You know, um, I, I particularly like the the title of this course because I think so often we as parents, and to be perfectly honest, I think professionals are are guilty of this as well, of overly complicating what attachment is. And I'm not trying to undermine the fact that that children who have attachment issues are a real challenge for to parent and and it's it's crucial that we as parents help our children attach so i'm not trying to undermine the importance of attachment or the difficulty but i think we have a tendency to overcomplicate so i am thankful that uh we're going to that we're focusing today on things that uh will hopefully uncomplicate rather than uh, uh, keep it complicated. So, but I, but having said that, I do want to start by uh, talking a little bit about how attachment affects the brain, because fundamentally, the lack of attachment impacts the, the, the are, are really the basic core of how the brain develops. And I think that's important to know from a parent standpoint. Yes. Um, for many of our parents, when they're thinking of attachment, they think of connection. And they're absolutely correct to do that. But it's not just the emotional connection that you're after, although that's very important. But what we've come to understand is that attachment is the means through which we develop our emotionality as human beings in terms of how we tolerate stress. Um, you, a lot of what you learn about stress management comes from the attachment relationship with one of your parents, or hopefully both of your parents if you have two attentive parents. But in a brain-to-brain connection, which is what attachment creates, we actually download a brain uh, pattern into the developing brain of a child. And this brain pattern allows you to tolerate stress, quick time, recognize the feelings of the other 
begin to name the feelings uh, of the other. And we learn to watch the face of the person to whom we're attached, and they signal to us many, many meanings of what circumstances um, mean emotionally. And these meanings include pay attention to this, don't pay attention to that. Or you look at it and it feels like a really big deal to you right now, bring it down. It's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Or this is an important big deal. Come to me, come close to me. We're Mm -hmm. constantly signaling through our attachment relationship and that builds basically our foundation for emotional um what we call emotional regulation, but it really means emotional balance. Now, of course, we want to be building on that for the rest of our lives. I don't want to have the emotional balance or lack of it that I had as a two-year-old or three-year-old or a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. I want to Mm -hmm. keep improving on it, but it forms a foundation. Well, let me ask, though, it seems to me that we certainly know that when a child comes to us in infancy, whether the child is born to us or adopted to us in infancy, we know how that attachment, or most of us do anyway, how that attachment is supposed to play out. The child has a need. The only way they can communicate that need is through crying. A parent attends to the child at that point, takes care of that child's need, or at least attempts to, or is present with the child in their suffering, whatever that might be, be it colic or whatever. And the child then learns to trust that their needs will be met by their caregiver, by their parent. But when a child comes to us at an older age, let's say even, let's say a any any age, toddler, preschooler, school-aged child, tween, or a teen, they may not have had that. Well, certainly if they've had that attachment, it was to another person. Um, so let's talk about if uh, the, what is the prognosis for a child who was attached and did have a caretaker who's met their needs. And then let's talk about a child who was in a situation where their needs were not met and they did not fully attach to their caretaker. So yes. let's start with the first one. Yeah. Sure. And um, Dawn, in many cases, our kids have been places before where they learn not to attach. If they were in an orphanage situation, many of our kids have come in from international orphanages. And in those orphanage situations, Because every time they tried to attach, the caregiver was very busy or their shift was over and another person took their place. What they've learned about attachment is these people go away. I'm trying to attach to them, but they keep going away. Or they're busy and when I look in their eyes, instead of seeing welcome, we're so glad you're here, little one. We instead see, I'm so busy. I've got to get to the next kiddo. You know, I've got 10 kids, babies to feed here. And so they're learning not to connect or they're learning to connect anxiously. What we find is that for many of the kids who have been in situations where they were frightened of their caregiver at times, but still had to go to them for care, maybe they were emotionally abused in um, a family that had drug alcohol problems or physically neglected. They've also learned to be pretty avoidant of the caregiver. And so there are the types of attachments that we expect to create with our children. We call those secure attachments. And those are relationships marked by met needs, sensitivity to the child's needs, um, by tolerable stress on the part of the caregiver, support system backing them up, Maybe not optimally, but certainly to some degree. And the child can go to their need, the caregiver, without fear that something is going to uh, harm them. But for many of our kids, they've been through neglect or trauma in the background. And emotional abuse uh, is certainly as harmful to children as physical abuse. We find that they want to avoid you. And so we have parents whose arms are just leaning out with love, 
ready to embrace a child, and the child has fear of the parent or a lot of control of the parent, or the child um, is avoidant of the parents. They kind of scamper in and get a little bit of what they need and then scamper out again. And so it's very tempting on the parents' part to think that they've got something wrong with them instead of, oh, this is going to take a lot longer than we thought. Well, uh, so... Uh, let's talk about something that uh, we're going to move into some of the, the the simple strategies that that families can use if they have foster, they're fostering a child or they are adopting a child who either has or has not had a firm uh, attachment with a caregiver before, but the parents realize how important it is that they establish this connection, this attachment with their child now. Um, can you explain the, the term we hear, emotional looping, the, um, and how that plays into creating attachment? Yes. Well, in, in typical childhood, in emotional looping, what we find is the parent basically sends a signal, the child receives the signal, and responds back to the parent. Either that or the child sends a signal the parent receives the signal and responds in a way that kind of closes that loop. What we find for many of the kids who have been through our care is that, or through uh, alternate care before ours, is that the children may have sent signals, but that signal wasn't responded to in a sensitive way or one that really made sense to the child. Like, or... Maybe maybe the parent sends signals, but the child's learned to be frightened or avoidant of the parent. And so the, the child responds in an unusual way. And so there's, there, you have to create the ability to have emotional connections or emotional looping again. Harvard now is calling that serve and return. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to see how many volleys you can go back and forth. Um, Greenspan had the concept of emotional looping. But what we're trying to do with kids is to cue them, that is, give them some kind of emotional um, signal and then have them respond to that instead of ignoring us, pushing away, or asking repetitively for something that isn't anything that we um, that has anything to do with the initial cue. They have let, me, a- let me interrupt now. Can you give us a specific example, uh, let's say for a five-year-old, of a serve and return or emotional looping? They mean the same thing. So can you give us an example of uh, sure. something that parents would do? Right. So a serve and return would be if your little guy had a red plastic bat and um, a wiffle ball and was trying to hit the the ball. Um, if he picked up the ball and the, and, um, the parent said, let me get your bat. And the child said, play with me. And the parents said, you bet, I've got some time. And then the, they go, do you want to play in front yard or backyard? That's a series of serving returns. And usually that's done with some eye contact, some excitement, and some choices. And you've got this sense we're connected. Um, that That's the type of thing you can do with serving return. Or if you have a child who wants to play babies. You're eating breakfast, and the child said, let me bring my doll. And the parent says, sit your doll here beside us. She's welcome. Would your doll like oatmeal, or would your doll like Cheerios? And she'd say Cheerios. And she she puts the Cheerio up to the doll's lips. Mm -hmm. And the parent says, does she like it? And the child says, yes. That's a series of serving returns, serving return. 
and they're okay. exchanging information about their worlds. All right. So now give us an example with, let's say, a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old comes into a waiting room. Um, he's got his hat on. The mom says, it's pretty warm in here. Do you want to take your hat off? And the teen says, no, I think I'll keep it on. And the mom says, well, your hat looks good on you. I like your new hat that you got for the holidays. And the kid says, thanks. It's nice and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. That's serve and return. This is what um, um, kind of a, a mess up looks like. The child comes into a waiting room. And he sits down and the mom says, you should take your hat off your indoors. He says, I don't want to take my hat off. The mom says a gentleman takes his hat off when he comes indoors, especially when there's a woman here. Mm -hmm. And he's like, mom, I don't want to take my hat off. And she says, take it off. And he takes it off. And he's got hat hair. And there's a cute 12-year-old girl also sitting in the waiting room. Yeah, nothing's worse than a hat hair and a cute girl. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And we all have those kinds of mess ups. And this is how you reestablish. Later, the mom said, I don't know what got into me. Suddenly, my great aunt started to speak out of my mouth. I'm so sorry I insisted on that. I should have been more sensitive to you. Would you forgive me? And then the kid says, no, because you really embarrassed me, mom, and you're doing that all the time. And the mom has the opportunity then to back off in kind, but she keeps doing serve and return. She said, I'm sorry that I do that. I'll try to do better. Can you help me by pointing out when I'm insensitive to you? Because I sure don't mean it. He said, well, I guess I'm going to have to kind of educate you. Otherwise, we're going to have this problem over and over again. And then <laughs> you're right. It's not just teens who are getting educated. Their parents are, too. So part okay. of the serve and return is um, it's, it's all part of interaction. Part of it, however, is eye contact, closeness, uh, attuning to what your child is actually saying, and nobody can do that 100% of the time. Sometimes you are trying to get the kid out the door or whatever. But the goal is to create as many of these, and they are often quite short. You've described some long ones, but sometimes it's just a child running out the door, uh, getting ready for school, and the mom rubs their back uh, and straightens her hat a little, rubs their back and smiles at them. Absolutely. Um, it's yeah, so quick. Kiss on the cheek, have a good day, and somebody's saying, thanks, Mom. Or, you know, they're, they're leaving for the day, and the mom says, hold on a second, you forgot your backpack. Thanks, Mom, appreciate that. It's, mm-hmm. And then you say, you got this, have a good day. Do you All notice right. there's an absence of shame? There's an absence of lecturing. Instead, there's a real concentration on making uh, some fluidity between the two of them. And so there's this sense of ease, like somebody's got your back, that somebody's looking for the best for you. But some kids, when we're working with, with we're parenting these children, are so hard to try to they it's like they're not giving in this given return the, the you know the serve and return you're serving and 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 you're not getting a return so what's a parent to do then when they yes. they're giving but don't feel well, the return you don't feel the return sometimes and part of parenting is you have to go in it with it it doesn't matter whether you're an adoptive parent or not. And many of our listening audience, they have both biologic children and children through adoption. But when you're following from someone else's foundation, basically you're pouring the quick mix 
for what cracks are there in the foundation. It's perhaps a faulty metaphor, but you're going to have to teach them a lot about reciprocity, that is, the going back and forth that they never experienced in the past. And so there's going to be a lot of filling up that pump until you've got a prime in the pump and you start to get something out the other end. And as one of my clients said to me, I need more support because my child is not going to be gratifying for a while. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the realities is it's going to take some time until you really have children who become more gratifying. Sometimes we actually go back through interactions. This is helpful to do with a therapist, but you can play different parts. And you can say, now I'm going to be the mom or you're going to be the mom and I'll be the child. You know, we'll go back through this. How did you feel when I turned away from you and didn't acknowledge you? And they might say, not very good. I said, yeah, it makes me a little sad. It would mean a lot to me if you could turn around and say, oh, thanks, mom. Or you have a good day too, mom. Or give me a little bit of a hug back. That would mean so much to me. And you've got a good heart. You're a great kid. It's just you didn't learn this one before. And, you know, it would mean something to me. Would you please work on that? Okay. So but one, notice one your, yes, well, I was going to say one technique is to specifically ask for what you as a parent need. Um, identify a one thing, not, not a million, uh, and specifically ask for it. So that's one technique I'm hearing you say. Sure. One technique is, and, and you script it. You don't have them make it up. You know, if you could say such and such. And for a lot of the listeners, they're already doing this for some important people in their lives. Um, some people know that uh, their spouses don't necessarily know what they want on significant holidays. And so they'll say, you know, you know, they're, they're leaving the breadcrumbs really close together. What would make me really happy for Mother's Day would be da 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 And they lay it out. And because the human condition is that we somehow expect other people to read our emotional minds. Mm-hmm. And as a group, we're rather faulty at it. But, you know, if you can tell kids how they can what they can say or what they can do that will make you happy. And then you compliment them on it. They really enjoy that. Um, And you go ahead. I can tell you've got a comment here. No, I was going to agree with you. Absolutely. Uh, You talk some uh, in your book about the importance of mealtimes and feeding and I guess it's almost primal. It takes us back to the prime. It's, it's such a, it's a, a fundamental need that we all have. What are some techniques that parents can use during mealtimes uh, that can help enhance attachment? Yes. And, you know, when we think of attachment, because we're verbal people, conceptual adults, we tend to think of it in more abstract terms. But actually, attachment is um, the part of the brain that really mediates attachment is our limbic system. And that is fairly primitive system. And when you were talking about emotional looping a couple minutes ago, the, the back and forth I gave mostly verbal, uh, verbally led uh, looping examples. But a lot of what we do in emotional looping or in attachment is nonverbal. It's very basic. You know, it has to do with let's eat together, enjoy the food together. Let's have warm touch back and forth. That's all relax, roll our shoulders back, take a deep breath and appreciate each other. It's in the soft eyes, the eye contact. Um, the smiles around the table. And so those are times in which 
the family is engaging in attachment-oriented behaviors that don't require a lot of thought, a lot of cognition, a lot of concentration. So we really want to protect those times. You know, when when we're with people who give us warm smiles and just look at us and embrace us with their attention, doesn't that feel good? Mm-hmm. It does. Something else that I would add for mealtimes, and this is, it's a hard one at times, uh, because our children may come to us with some, what we perceive as um, some unhealthy eating habits. Um, and yes. Or if they come to us from a foreign country, we may not know what their eating habits are. But if they come to us uh, uh, at an older age here in the U.S., it's not at all unusual for them to come with some fairly uh, unhealthy type of eating. And so there's a temptation to utilize mealtimes to correct that problem. Uh, but that can, especially at the beginning, interfere with that sense of security and attachment. Yeah, I like to think in terms of what are first tier, second tier, and third tier problems. Your first tier emphasis is on attachment and helping kids to feel safe. So safety, connection, that's what you work on in the first year, first year and a half. Um, Having proper table manners, that's a third tier problem. You know, and you don't want to lose your strengths while you work on manners. Your, your strengths are the ability to use food for attachment purposes. They start to help kids feel secure and relaxed around their feeding, who enjoy dinner with their families. And so if you're going to work on manners, then you can work on manners at a different time and a little further down in mm-hmm. the placement. And I was actually probably more, I was more referring to children who only eat, you know, only the only thing they crave is macaroni and cheese and Cheetos. Um, and parents can worry about that. You know, my gosh, the long-term health of this child when they literally will only eat macaroni and cheese and Cheetos. Uh, where would you, how, how would you handle that in your first tier, second tier, third tier? Right, you include some of the things that they most like and are used to uh, on the table, but then you put out other foods as well. You don't urge necessarily, you just invite. But Mm -hmm. the parent's responsible for what's on the shopping list. If you have a child who wants mac and cheese every day, then buy enough mac and cheese for once a week. You just don't mm-hmm. put it in into the shopping cart. No, for okay. the first few weeks when the child comes into the home, you can have a little mac and cheese every day. I, frankly, when they're coming into your home, uh, you could have mac and cheese for the first three weeks if that helps them to calm down as quickly as possible. But then you want to kind of pare back after that. I think sometimes when kids are coming into the family, our families are so desirous of the child doing well that they make very rapid transitions and they work way too hard on many things. And the, and they create too many points of intervention. It, they're too hard on themselves and the child as a result. You know, it's really better to think in terms of, What's most significant in the first few weeks? And that's helping that child to feel cared for, loved, start a connection with you, start the relaxing, helping them to feel safe in, in as many ways it may as take possible. a while. And that may take a while depending on the age of the child and the child's earlier life experience. So first tier, and it can last any number of, of weeks, months, whatever, is to establish a, the, for the child a sense of safety and that they're going to be cared for, their needs will be met, and help them relax enough that they can learn something else um, because those needs are so fundamental. 
Right. And um, when I'm talking about tears, I'm not necessarily saying that you say, therefore, there is this like first tier. We're not there yet. So we have mac and cheese for a year. You mm-hmm. know, in the initial period of placement for children, it takes so many days and weeks to grieve a loss. And they're in that intense grief state and kind of a shock state for many of the kids who are coming in internationally. The whole schedule's gone. And that was the predictability they had in the past. You know, things they smelled, people around them, the routines, the food, everything's missing. And so, you know, you're helping them to calm down in as many ways as you can, because that's really a crisis period for them. Mm-hmm. And, and so simplify your life, simplify your expectations uh, of what you think this child should be doing and, and how they should be responding. Um, that's kind of the um, um, just trying to survive mode, but that won't last forever. Uh, and then then you move into some of the slowly but surely the attaching the 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 serve and re- seeking as many moments to verbally and non-verbally um, send serve and return eye contact uh, rubbing of the back um, tucking a child in at night and rubbing their feet if they like that or scratching their head or whatever uh, is a form is something that gives comfort to them. Um, We're looking for lots of things that have skin-to-skin eye contact. In the book, Attaching with Love, Hugs, and Play, I worked with the publisher to see if we couldn't get pictures in this time, just showing some of the postures. You know, we play games like uh, Airplane Ride. We play um, Pony Girl, Pony Boy on on the lap. Lots of, lots of um, movement games so the kids have to look at your eyes and notice the expression on your face to know what comes next we do lots mm-hmm. of skin to skin like swimming together um rocking together things that cause children to want to reach out and cling clinging is a really kind of significant bonding thing that occurs with children where they cling to you. So what causes children to want to cling? Well, if you're swooping around playing airplane or, you know, you're running, you're playing run and chase games, any things like any of those things um, cause clinging activities. Uh, Things where, you know, you're playing some kind of a, our our kids like to play flashlight tag in the wintertime. You know, we we get dark early and we play flashlight tag. If you can have high excitement, a lot of fun, you know, that kind of thing really causes children to giggle and laugh and enjoy your company. You know, I often will tell parents who are in the, you know, the very beginning stages that, You don't need to remember a lot of things, but one thing you need to remember is look for as many opportunities to enjoy yourselves with this child. Find something that you and the child enjoy doing and make a point of doing it as often as possible. And at a minimum, uh, the family should be doing something that everyone in the family enjoys once a week. And uh, every day you're going to try to find something that the child enjoys and you enjoy, and you're trying to add joy in because there's nothing like, as your book title says, there's nothing like play uh, to help families attach and children and parents both, and both ways, both parent to attach to the child and the child attached to the parent. So I, I just can't, uh, I can't stress the power of play enough, it seems to me. And, and play actually... When, when you have dynamic play, I'm not talking about board games, but dynamic play where you have to kind of guess the intention of the other person. And this can start as early as a year where you see kids having more dynamic play. We find that the um, children, if we scan kids' brains, that's when all the parts of the brain are working together the very most, and we have 
tremendous amount of brain development during that time. So for parents who are interested in um, stimulating their children, especially when their children have not had adequate stimulation in the past, they're often thinking, well, you know, what kind of special services can I get in for the child? It's not necessarily that you don't ever want to get a speech language evaluation, get that done. But playing is really right up there with one of the things that you can do to help your child's brain. Oh, absolutely. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking with Deborah Gray about simple strategies to help you attach to your child. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and wouldn't happen without the generous support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information about all aspects of adoption and fostering. One such partner is... Holt International. They were founded in 1956, and they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk of separation, and they lead the global community in finding families for children who need them and to provide the pre- and post-adoption support that they need to thrive. Another one of our sponsors is Spence Chapin. They are a licensed, accredited, nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area, that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. They have a robust post-adoption services that they provide to all, all, all members of the triad, birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees. Uh, and they really believe in supporting the families for a lifetime. Adoption is for the life, and they believe in supporting families for the life, for the life of the family. All right, so we've been talking a lot about the importance of, of play uh, of all sorts. Let's talk a little about some, how sleep disruptions can impact children and families uh, who are trying to create attachment. I raise this because the reality is that the uh, combination of stress for both the child and the parent and just the, the, the child being fearful at night can be waking at night or the worry from the parents that the child's going to be up and moving about at night can interfere with sleep. So some thoughts on how sleep affects attachment and what we can do about it. Sure. Well, first of all, um, there, when children have lacked a primary caregiver, um, who's attached to them, even if everything else in their life is safe, what we find is that they're running high cortisol levels, which measure stress. And so when children are coming into families, we've additionally found that there's um, an inverse cortisol curve that we see in those kids. And not all kids have this, but an awful lot of them have it. It's particularly common after maltreatment or if kids have come into families through foster care. The inverse cortisol level means that they're more tired, groggy, hard to get going in the morning, reluctant to eat in the morning, and they're more wakeful at night. They're hungry at night. They're more active at night. You could see why this could make sense. If you don't have somebody with, um, you can depend on at night and that kind of dependability or trust is part of a secure attachment. If you don't have that, maybe it's kind of better for you to have your eyes open or sleep lightly at night. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what's happening to a lot of the kids coming into the families. And so as you um, improve in security of attachments, kids are more likely to normalize their uh, cortisol curve so that then they become more alert in the morning and go down to bed at night better. Um, that being said, what are some things that you can do in the interim? Why don't I just go and go through a bunch of things? First of all, no TV, no computer, no backlit games two hours before bedtime. Um, the 
photon stimulation, you know, photons being um, the receptors for light, those cause us to get signals that it's time to be up when we should really be in bed. And so for parents and children alike, they shouldn't be on phones, computers, TV, anything like that two hours before the time they expect to go to sleep. When your child's brushing your teeth at night and you're brushing yours, don't put on those strong vanity lights either. That kind of goes against the whole atmosphere you're trying to create. You kind of know where your face and teeth are. You'll be fine with just, you know, a normal life. <laughs> so, um, and, so, and then when you're trying to get good sleep, if you can have an hour of physical activity every day for parents and child, you'll sleep better at night. Um, we kind of forget that we're mammals and we need our exercise to be able to have a, a normal sleep schedule. And for both parents and children, you know, e even if parents can get that five times a week, it'll make a big difference. Children optimally should have an hour of physical activity, heavy physical, ex you know, a lot of motor activity every day. Uh, another thing is um, for the kids, you want to start to slow down into the evenings. So, you know, if you can have your reading time, your cozy time, your sleeping time going into the evenings, it's just great. My mom used to read to us. That was so neat. And she'd sing lullabies to us. That was wonderful. And so that was part of my family heritage. I was happy to pass on to other people. A lot of the kids do very well if you just kind of rock them to sleep. Parents really have to watch themselves for sleep because we're not in a culture that supports it. And when you're parenting kids who are going to take extra energy, kind of thinking about what did that mean when they did that? Or how do I handle that situation? Or um, I think my child is showing me evidence of some kind of a trauma or loss memory. What does that mean? It means that their brains are, for parents, doing this type of processing, it causes a pretty big mental load. And they actually need about a half hour to an hour more of sleep at night. So if parents can make sure they get that extra sleep, that would be great. Our culture doesn't tend to support the extra sleep needs of parents who are adopting past the infancy stage. Mm -hmm. but I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, but they need more sleep because they're processing so much information. It's tiring. Mm -hmm. And so you give yourself extra sleep or you look for times to have naps, just as if you had that newborn and you had that kind of societal expectation that you should be getting your sleep. Mm -hmm. It's such a good analogy. Uh, we tend to think when we are adopting older kids, well, and it's not just what we think, it's what everyone thinks. If you adopt an 11-year-old, there usually aren't a long line of people who are uh, signing up to bring you meals. And when you run into people, they're not saying, oh, how are you surviving? How much sleep are you getting? Which is, of course, the standard lines that we give anybody with a new baby. Um, but uh, new parents to an 11-year-old need the meals. They need the, they need the uh, expectation that they've got to be into kind of a, a nesting self-care stage uh, just as much. So I'm really glad you, you pointed that out. Speaking of adopting an 11-year-old, uh, let's talk about some of the differences in helping to create attachment when you adopt a, a, a 12, 13-year-old, 11-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever, 15-year-old, versus adopting a preschooler. Um, what are some ways that parents can help create attachment in their, their tweens and teens when, when they're adopted at that age? Right. One of the things is to make yourself available. Um, teens act like they don't need you till they need you right now. So you have to have lots of time where your schedule is cleared. Um, another thing is you have zones of time that are kind of cozy times where you're inviting a child into your presence. You don't over invite 
but you invite, you sit down, you make yourself available. You find out what kind of movies they like. You watch movies with them. What kind of activities do they like? You do those types of activities. Um, at one point, um, my husband um, thought he was losing some connection with our son and so started to play paintball with him. Um, you know, it, at one point, uh, my husband's uh, propensity to go get a Coke in the canteen was uh, revealed to me by my son. He said, my dad doesn't guard the perimeter. We find him sneaking off to the canteen. But mm -hmm. it was still a lot of fun. And so you're doing things that really follow the teen's interests. And I like having zones of time that are basically declared neutral, where you don't work on uh, homework, you don't work on, you know, whether it's in, whether it's not, you don't work on any kind of behavioral issue. And instead, you just enjoy each other as a family. So that might be meal times, might be on Saturday mornings, might be on the way to guitar lessons. Those are just neutral times. Um, food is huge for teens. And so they're kind of like toddlers, again, that you want to up the food. And um, something that I used to do that worked well for me when I fostered as well as when I raised my teens was um, I, I would cook on Saturday mornings. They'd sleep in and they could hear the food being prepared. They'd wake up to the smell and then they'd come eat. You have these conversational times well, you know, you're making, I, I, I like to bake. So the baking is smelling pretty good. The muffins are coming out. There's soup on the stove. You know, that's what draws them to you. But there's a much slower uh, pacing that parents have so that it, they can accomplish the most important tasks, which are both staying connected to your teens, but also being um, available to learn about their world. One of the great gifts that our teens give us is the ability to bridge between the world we grew up in and the world they're growing up in. And so I like to say to teens, I don't know what it's like to grow up at the time you're growing up. I need to learn from you what the world's like now. I know what the world was like before. I don't know what it's like now. I want to learn about that. What's that like for you? And what the parent's really doing is understanding something we call theory of mind. When your theory of mind is just understanding the emotional makeup, the thoughts, the feelings of the other person, how do they look at life? How do they feel about life? And secure attachment often moves into, can you reinforce that teen's dreams? Can you validate their worth as a human being? Do you believe in your teen? Do you see what's significant for that teen? And then work to make sure that things that are significant for that teen are um, woven into our daily lives and the values and how we spend our time or maybe what we think of in terms of vacations. And something you brought up was the uh, role of, of school and, and how that can impact and affect your relationship. Um, there's not a parent alive of a, of a, especially a child who has been adopted at an older age. Well, there probably are some kids who come in without academic delays, but there are a lot of our children who come in with significant academic uh, delays. School is not a place that they excel, and the schools put a lot of pressure on the parents. Uh, your kid's not turning in his homework. Your kid has this year's reading at a fourth grade level. Your kid and is in, and is in 11th grade. Uh, your kid is uh, not prepared for and probably not going to pass the end of grade test. Uh, so there is a whole lot of pressure that parents feel um, 
to keep their get their kids up to level or to get their homework in or to do everything they can um, to to help them and, and it's driven partly by fear um, as a parent you're afraid if if my oh my gosh if if my 11th grader is reading on a fourth grade level what does that mean um, does it, what does it mean for this child's future what's going to happen uh, when they graduate will they graduate uh, so let's talk a little about how to put school in perspective, perhaps go back to your first tier, second tier, third tier. And this is particularly in the case either for children who were adopted past infancy or children who were adopted as tweens and teens. Sure. And as a matter of fact, um, many of the kids who have any kind of prenatal exposure or have uh, had malnutrition will have some uh, learning disabilities. So Shagani and Barron's did a classic study in which they looked at kids after institutional placement. They found about half of those past infancy were going to have a learning disability, normal IQ with a learning disability. And mm-hmm. um, wait, I, I misspoke. Let me start again. Um, Shigani and Barron's found that half the kids uh, who had post who were post institutional that is they'd been in an in institution beyond um, a, a few months in infancy that those children ended up about half of them had a normal IQ about half didn't of the half with a normal IQ about half of them had a learning disability. Um, that would really interfere with their performance. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm bringing this up is when you have that many children in the adoption community, we also have a lot of support. So FRUA has a lot of information out on how to help kids with learning disabilities. But just in terms of the attachment perspective, one of the things that people do that really helps out in attachment is that they understand the dreams of the child and help them get to dreams. With our parents, we want to make sure that parents are helping their child know that they can have a good future. And so what really makes a good future? You have to be able to support yourself or have a a way of supporting yourself that's legal. If a child has such learning issues that they're going to be on social security disability, it's a legal form of um, income. But most of the kids aren't going to be on social security. They are, many kids will have learning issues. Of course, many won't, but many will. And so you don't make school the be all, know all. And I've taken kids and made 10 dots and then on a piece of paper. And I said, if you take these 10 dots, this is like out of every 10 kids and I'll circle six. I'll say, this is how our schools are set up is to best educate these six. Okay. About one of the kids of these 10 will turn out to be a child whose learning is really slow. Okay, you're not that child. This would be for a child with learning differences. You're one of these three. You learn differently. We can have a good future for you, and I want you to work hard in school, but I don't want you to think if you're not getting A's that you're not an A kid. You may get some C's and D's. That never stops you from being an A kid or really having a a good life. I don't want you to take on shame that you're not doing a good job. And I have a lot of discussion with kids around that. What can they do and be successful at? It's going to give them a good way of making a living and taking care of themselves. And how can they maintain their self-esteem? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's advice for parents as they come along and I talk to teachers sometimes and say, you know, this parent needs to hear just as many positive things about their kid as any other 
child's parents. And so when you're sending home comments, can you send home as many positive comments as negative comments? This would really help the parents to be able to um, maintain hope so that the child stays invested in school. I live in the state of Washington. We're about in the middle here in the um, in the states as far as uh, our educational achievement, maybe a little above average. But if we have children who have IEPs in our state, about 30% of them do not finish high school, which mm-hmm. I think is very significant. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons they don't finish high school is because they don't want to stay connected to something that brings their self-esteem down all the time, where they succeed. And so you have to figure out with the school, how can this child stay invested enough to get an education and feel successful? How are we going to Absolutely. In addition, you you mentioned uh, the studies that show the impact of institutionalization. I would also say that uh, there are similar studies that show children in foster care, be it from prenatal exposure or from early neglect, um, are also at a higher risk for learning disabilities. And a wonderful resource uh, on understanding all, all aspects of learning disabilities is a uh, there's many of them just google it but there's one in particular that I've recently become familiar with and think highly of it's called understood.org uh, a, a really good use of of um, a, a really good source of accurate information on understanding learning disabilities and IEPs and and 504s and all sorts of a lingo that go with schools for kids who learn differently now I want to use our remaining time to talk about something that might not be perceived as a simple technique to help attachment with our kids, and that is self-care. It seems like, you know, I said before that uh, one of the things that I always bring up, uh, particularly with families who are in the beginning stages of a placement, is the importance of play uh, and that that play be something that both parent and child enjoy. Um, The second thing I always bring up is self-care for the parents. Uh, And let's talk a little about why is self-care for parents? It seems kind of selfish, you know, because we've got this child who needs a lot and needs a lot from us. Why am I, why would we spend time on a show that talks about attachment, talking about the selfish things that parents can do for themselves and not for this child? Well, when you're forming attachment, the way in which you're doing that serve and return or the cueing with response um, has to be done in an invitational way. And when you're tired and you're stressed, you're in the wrong part of your brain. It comes out of duty. It doesn't signal emotionally in the same way. And so to be t- when you're really tired, you can ask a child to come sit with you, but it doesn't have the same emotional meaning as you convey the ask. And we have a part of Uh, our brain that's developed very early that actually can read the emotional intent behind the invitation. Kids know something's off. And so you don't have what um, Karen Purvis called soft eyes um, when you're really tired. You can't create secure attachments when you're exhausted. Um, All you want to do is to take a bath and get into bed. I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to who hope that they could come up with a a physical condition that would require them to go to bed for a couple weeks and someone to bring them meals. Not something fatal, just something that would allow them to get rest. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you're you're going for, something that – uh, a lifestyle that really pairs back a lot of the minutia so that you're left with really the good bits and enough attention 
um, on the child to do the extra the extra emotional work it takes to attach to somebody because it's not like you can just be there and the child will come up to you. In many cases you're serving and the child's looking at you with kind of a blank expression, or maybe they walk away or they act confused, or maybe they do respond. And then, you know, the next time they don't. And so it's like other, uh, phases of development, they respond, then they don't, then they respond more, then they don't, you know, there's gradually an arcing in the right direction, but it takes some time and tension and effort. And that's what's going to take the time. Also, very few of the kids after maltreatment um, come in without uh, control issues or real Uh, issues around uh, food insecurity or um, the ability to kind of relax into their parents' care. They have difficulty settling. And this is going to take a lot of work on your part. You know, it's not unusual for my parents who are working uh, in new placements to have two hours till bed, uh, two hour bedtime routine. And mm-hmm. that's tiring. And so you have to take care of yourself so you have enough energy to do that. And just keep the infrastructure going. Even doing that is difficult. And so before a placement, you want to kind of go through and relentlessly uh, take out some things that you need to drop. And if you haven't done that and you're in the midst of a placement and you're feeling haggard all the time, then have somebody sit down with you and figure out what you can stop doing, resign from, trade away uh, so that you can enjoy the life you've been given. Because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times that is more within our grasp than we realize. And it's important to think that if this gives you for some people, it would give them pleasure. Yes, please give me a good reason to to cut back. But for other people, the things they are doing are things that are important to them. They may be, you know, serving on a committee at um, uh, at church. They may be uh, involved in uh, clubs that matter to them. Uh, and that it's. I think it's important to realize that number one, cutting back is not forever. Uh, that you are in a period of time that you need to be focusing on this. But I also think it's important to keep some of the things in that bring you pleasure. If book club is something that rejuvenates you, then that's something you wouldn't cut out because you are looking for opportunities for nurturing yourself because you can't really expect a newly fostered or a newly adopted child to be nurturing to you or to be even providing even some of the subtle nurturings that we get when our children are cuddly and sweet. And as you say, when we serve, they give the appropriate return. All of that is is feeding for parents. And if you're not getting fed in that way, you do need to find ways to be um, taking care of keeping a few things in that bring you pleasure. Well, and I think that that's such a good point, too. You know, it's like, what are the most stressful times of the week? How can you reduce or get rid of some of those on the other side? What are the real positives that need to be in your life? You know, and you keep Mm -hmm. those. But, for example, over the holidays, if one of your holiday uh, joys might be making cookies, or going to plays, maybe one year you would go to plays, but this year you make one batch of cookies, you know, and that's it. You you are much more careful in how much you take on because we've created our lives to be enjoyable. But then after a while, they we're still in the, in the uh, harness, even though they've no longer be, been <laughs> enjoyable for some time. And so yeah. it takes some noodling just yeah. to get rid of things that aren't pleasurable or we're doing out of duty. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, free time you have, you don't want to be spending it 
um, because you're trying to please somebody else or you feel guilty if you drop out. Absolutely. And and one last thing I would add would be if, uh, and for most of us, we need a time alone. And that is never more true than uh, when we have young children, our newly uh, adopted kids, our a new foster child, uh, or even quite frankly, some that have been there for a while. So figuring out a way uh, in your schedule that you can get some time off. And uh, it may be when your kid is involved in an activity. It could be if you have a partner, your partner, and you trade off every other Saturday morning. You may have to be creative in how you do it. Um, but uh, it's important to find time for yourself. And I would also add important if you are in a relationship to find time for you and your partner. Um, because that's an important relationship too. So, and, and not to be, it's all part of self-care, uh, is uh, find out what rejuvenates you and make sure that you allow time for that in your, in your schedule. Well, we have come to the end. Uh, Deborah Gray, thank you so much for talking with us today about uh, simple strategies for creating attachment. Uh, I can't recommend enough. Her book is practical and easy to read, uh, Attaching Through Love, Hugs, and Play. Uh, and, uh, of course, there are other attachment books that, uh, and other courses that we have on attachment also. So I would encourage you to continue your study of this because uh, it matters and it's important. Keep in mind that the views expressed in this show are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to you and your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption or fostering professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.